Hey, we are live. It is great to have your company as I try to figure out how computers work. I know a lot of you have been experienced with computers over the years. And so hello to you on YouTube, on Facebook and on LinkedIn. And now let's get ready to say hello over here. We're going to say hello over here to our friends over on Instagram. So hello there on Instagram. Hello there on Facebook, YouTube, LinkedIn. Um, team, today is the last one. Um, we have been part of a series of CLEs. You and I have been here working through these fiddly concepts. And today is the fifth and final CLE we've been working through. Um, so if I can just start off as the room starts to fill um, with a little bit of a kind of plug, um, this is a fifth of five, which means there are four preceding it. It's funny how those numbers work that way. Um, and if you're interested in the way I go about things, or interested in the way I communicate some of this stuff, you're gonna be able to find earlier versions of this stuff online. So if I can start off as, oh, as the room starts to fill a fair, a fair bit, thank you, um, with um, lovely people joining in. Mina, that's a lovely thing to say. I really appreciate the comments. And, and it is really, really nice to have uh, comments flow in as I go, oh, I'm sitting here by myself fiddling with Lego and reading a PDF in the office here. So anytime you feel like making a comment, that's always welcome. Um, let me start again. Um, uh, this is the fifth of a series of five. The first four are going to be up pretty much on whatever. Sorry about that. Uh, getting a sorry about that on Instagram. Just got a phone call, which is good fun, and it shows we really are live. Things are things are really uh, going on. Um, so, if I can ask you please to uh, share this link as well as you're watching it, share it and send it around to any friends who might be interested or colleagues or anything like that. Sorry. So this is the fifth of a series of five. Uh, the first two concerned corporate oppression and derivative actions. I'm going to get into those a little bit today as we work through it. We then talked about partnership disputes and we then talked about 66G trustees. All of those talks are up on whatever platform you're watching this on. Um, and I'll be in a position to share those with you uh, in due course. I'm also working from a paper just here, right? So uh, if you want a copy of this, it's pretty easy to send emails or message it to you or whatever it is. So please feel free um, just to uh, send that email through. Uh, Alan, really appreciate you joining in for the fifth. Better late than never, but uh, the earlier ones are up and I'm happy to direct you to them or someone will direct you to them uh, in, in the comments if you'd like. So what are we talking about today? Today we are talking about section 461, subsection 1, subsection little k of the Corporations Act, which is all about winding up uh, companies on the just and equitable basis. Sorry, I'm pushing wave at all the nice people joining in. So that's what I'm doing. If I look distracted, it's great to have everyone's company and great to wave at you. So I really appreciate um, you coming in. So just and equitable winding up pursuant to section 461, subsection 1, little k of the Corporations Act. It is a fiddly, confusing, funny little area, and we're going to work through it together today. And I promise you the first sort of 30 minutes ugh, are going to feel a little bit fiddly, a little bit ugly, a little bit confusing as I fiddle with my Lego here under the table. Um, but we're going to progress from there and we're going to come to an understanding of where just an equitable winding up of companies fits in to the broader palette that we as lawyers paint from when we're advising sort of disappointed shareholders, disappointed directors in relation to a company. So let's start working through some of this hot content that I've drafted for us today that I'll be working from. Um, depending on the issues your client has in relation to a company, your client has a number of options open to them, right? Your client might want to think about uh, a corporate oppression suit. 
your client might want to think about a derivative action. Uh, depending on the nature of the structure involved, your client might be thinking about a partnership dispute. Depending on the co-ownership interests, your client might be thinking about Section 66G of the Conveyancing Act. But what we find is that similar fact patterns or potentially the same fact pattern can open a way for your client to consider each of these different paths. And we've spoken earlier about corporate oppression. I'm not planning to go into that at much depth just at this stage of the talk. We've spoken earlier about derivative actions. I'm not planning to go into depth much on that point at this stage of the talk. But what we have not spoken about is we've not spoken about the just and equitable winding up of a company. And so today, that's the job we're going to do. And as in previous weeks, we're going to divide our discussion into three sections. Section one, we're going to talk through the real nuts and bolts, the real fiddly bits of the law. Section two, we're going to work through some practical examples. We're going to go into some cases of like, yeah, okay, what actually happens when the rubber hits the road of this stuff? What do the courts look at? What are the sorts of fact patterns that are coming up? How can I think about these issues in the context of advising my client? And then section three, we're going to dive into some practical suggestions. And just to give you a spoiler for section three, we're going to really try to nut out how we think about just and equitable winding up um, in relation to the, uh, the other remedies of corporate oppression and derivative actions. Okay. Now, um, let us get started on the section relating to the law. Now, the important for us subsection is subsection 461, open parentheses, numeral one, open parentheses, little k, um, in relation to the Corporations Act. And essentially, what that section allows a court to do, what a court may do, and we'll come back to that point about may, a court may wind up a company if it considers it will be just and equitable to do so. Now, just that is what we're going to be focusing on today. That's section 4611 little k. But there are some are similar sections that are related and not absolutely identical that we can dive into as well. So I'll just draw your attention to section 461 sub 1 f and section 461 sub 1 g. Each of those sections has a real corporate oppression flavour to it. And then sub E has a real director's duties breach flavour to it. So when we talk about subsection, sorry, when we talk about section 461 sub 1, we often find ourselves talking about just an equitable winding up of companies. But I just wanted to sprinkle a bit of fairy dust at the start of today's discussion to say, yes, today's discussion at its heart is about when is it just and equitable to wind up a company? But I just wanted to bring to your attention that you've got other tools in your toolkit in subsection 461 sub 1 if you want to have a think about those in relation to a company whose affairs your client is upset about. Um, and some of the bases that a court can order a wind up is if the company has no members, if the directors have acted in their own interests rather than the interests of the members of a whole, if the affairs of the company have been conducted in a manner that is oppressive or unfairly prejudicial. That's a term you'd remember from a few weeks ago when we spoke about corporate oppression. So the point I really want you to take from that is section 461 sub 1 um, has a fair bit of work to do. And if all that sounded like gobbledygook, I'm happy to send you through the PDF I'm working from. So let me jump into the first question I say that's going to assist us in engaging with just and equitable winding up of companies. And that's a question that I'm going to pose rhetorically, that is when is it just and equitable for a court to wind up a company? What are the sorts of circumstances that a company will find itself in, in relation to the making 
of an order, which it has the discretion to make um, in relation to this section. When is it just and equitable to wind up a company? What we're often talking about is a breakdown in relationships. And what we sometimes think of as the leading example is where we have a quasi-partnership relationship in a company. So we've got close personal relationships between our relevant shareholders or our relevant directors. And we find the relationships between those shareholders and directors have sort of devolved and broken down to the point where the functioning of the company is essentially hamstrung, right? Where um, the company cannot go on and function because the people who own it and run it are unable to do so together. And that is that kind of breakdown in relationships of a quasi-partnership company is your kind of leading textbook example of when it's just and equitable to wind up a company. Now, um, we're going to come later to some back to those distinctions between the just and equitable winding up of a company and corporate oppression. But as you can imagine, if I'm sitting here and you and I are directors together and I'm saying, well, uh, you and your role as director have misbehaved, if I say that and I'm also a shareholder, then there are a whole range of options open to me as how I want to prosecute my disappointment. Do I want to frame my claim as a corporate oppression claim? Do I want to frame my claim as a derivative action? Do I want to frame my claim in relation to a just and equitable winding up pursuant to sub 461, so 461 sub 1 sub little k? That's the kind of question we're going to sort of get to grapple with today. So when is it just and equitable to wind up a company? Um, it's when there's been, and I'm going to read through a number of criteria here to bend your brain, but then we'll kind of draw them back together. When there's been a failure in the substratum of the company, like the, the, the basis, the foundation of what the company's meant to do has failed. Uh, when there's been a deadlock or disagreement in management, as we've discussed, fraud in the formation of the company, misconduct by directors, a constitutional and administrative vacuum in the management of a company. If I can just linger on that point, that's an interesting one because it doesn't actually require the misconduct of any party. So a vacuum is not about someone doing something bad. A vacuum is about no one doing nothing. <laughs> um, and so you sometimes find yourself in this sort of position where a company will be essentially rudderless and might own, for example, a lot of assets or something like that. And so the challenge you might face as a lawyer trying to deal with that is to say, right, how do we kind of deal with this arrangement where the asset we care about is in the hands of this entity that's essentially rudderless? And this is the sort of section we can turn to. Um, other circumstances are when there are concerns about a company's compliance with its obligations, things like tax and reporting, or where there's a risk to the public interest that warrants protection. Now, um, mere disagreement is not enough. The breakdown of the relationship between, if we take the example of directors or shareholders, I mean, in order for it to found a, a basis for the court to make orders that it's just and equitable for the company to be wound up, um, what must be shown is something beyond a mere disagreement. It must be shown that the breakdown of your and my relationship is such that you and I just can't get along anymore. You and I are done. We're unable to uh, get along. We're unable to um, uh, the company's hamstrung because you and I just can't just can't get our act together. It's not just that we disagree. It's such that the company can't function. And importantly, and so I'm working through a number of criteria here that you'll be able to take from me if you want a copy of the paper. The circumstances need not amount to oppression, right? Um, and that's quite important because while a person who is responsible for the breakdown in the relationship 
is less likely to get relief, they are not barred from getting relief. So if I can just, that might sound a bit fiddly, but let's just get back into our basic fact pattern where you and I are directors and shareholders of the same company. Let's say you and I both misbehave. You say you're the worst. Sorry, you say I'm the worst. I say you're the worst. And we've all got arguments about money being paid to me and money being paid to you and all this sort of thing. Um, in that circumstance, I, for example, might have challenge bringing an oppression claim because there might be an argument raised that says, well, um, you haven't been unfairly prejudiced because I might have baited you into your behaviour. And so the court might say, no, there's no oppression remedy for you because you're just as bad of a misbehaving person as the other person, as you have been. And so that's a possibility in relation to corporate oppression. There's, there's all an almost clean hands um, element to that. Whereas a just and equitable wind-up is almost more about the company, more about can this thing function. And let's go back to that fat pattern where you and I are both um, hopelessly disagreeing and unable to get along together. In that fact pattern, that is the kind of fact pattern that would lead to a just and equitable wind-up. And the reason it would is that the court would form the view that our disagreement is such, regardless of, you know, um, the he said, she said, who, who did it first and this sort of thing, who did it first, who did it worst, um, the disagreement would be such that it's hamstringing the company. And if that is the case, then the company is likely to be wound up on the just and equitable basis. Now, importantly, um, winding up is an extreme step and it's a last resort. But the mere fact of, for example, solvency of a company to say, no, 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 I'm this thing solvent, you can't wind it up. That's not going to be enough to resist an otherwise well-founded application to wind up a company. Um, now, if, if we're just getting into the criteria, remember we're talking about when is it just and equitable to wind up a company? The really important point, and this lingers on the public interest issue I raised a moment ago, is that it is just and equitable for all that the company be wound up. It is not merely to say it's just and equitable for the applicant, for the plaintiff who's complaining and upset about the scenario. It must be just and equitable for all of the relevant parties that the company be wound up. I hope you're able to cling on to that point. So we just worked through that question of when's it just and equitable to wind up the company. And as I say, you're welcome to grab a copy of the paper that will assist you to go through those criteria. Our next question is who? Who can apply for relief? Right, the company itself can actually bring an application pursuant to section 461 sub 1K. And that's an interesting point in and of itself where you might find a director causing the company to bring an application um, on the basis that the balance of the board is not getting along well, whatever it may be. Or if we reflect on it for a moment, such an application might even be able to be brought pursuant to leave granted via section 236 to sort of bring that application on a derivative basis. That's an interesting little uh, bit of mental arithmetic and uh, brain, brain bending for us all to engage in. But that strikes me as an interesting option as well to explore. Now, um, importantly, the company can bring it, as I said, a contributory can bring an application that the company be wound up on the just and equitable basis. And when we say contributory, for our purposes in this discussion, we can use that term more or less interchangeably with any sort of member or shareholder that we might be uh, dealing with in our practice from time to time. So that's who can bring an application pursuant to Section 461. Importantly, I need to take you to Section 467, Subsection 4, 
And what that section does is it essentially prohibits the court from making a section 461 sub 1 sub K order unless there is no alternative remedy, right? So this sort of links into the idea that the winding up of a company is a really extreme step and the court is only going to take this extreme step if there is no alternative remedy. That's section 467 sub 4. And the real sort of teeth of this issue can be found when we think back to the fact that the fact pattern that leads to a just and equitable winding up application can also to apply, for example, to a corporate oppression application, arguably, depending on the facts. Now, that is important because there may be an argument brought by someone resisting a section 461 sub 1 sub K application that says, hey, look, I'm resisting this application on the basis there is an alternate remedy, and that alternate remedy may be a forced share sale pursuant to section 233 of the Corporations Act, the corporate oppression relief. And that's a reasonably compelling argument if you're resisting a 461 sub 1 sub K um, application. Now, similarly, um, and a successful applicant will have to prove there's no alternate commercial uh, remedy available. So let's say even a negotiated share sale that may be outside the basis of, hey, there's some other court application you can make. The applicant will also have to satisfy the court that there was no alternative commercial negotiation to be made. So just an equitable wind-up application is not one just to shoot from the hip on. It's one to treat as an extreme step. I'll, I'll withdraw that. It's one to treat as something close to a genuine last resort. Um, you're going to need to show the court that there have been other options pursued for the negotiation of an outcome. And you're going to have to show the court that there's no other obvious application that might have been brought in relation to the facts arising. Now, there's one final element um, I want us to look at, and it's the one we've been sort of hinting at and dancing around the whole time, and that is section 461 sub 1 sub K or the oppression remedy. Now, as we've said, there are fact patterns that lead to both, but there are a number of important differences. One of them I alluded to before. Now, if we take the example of like an irreconcilable difference, you and I might be co-owners of a company and you and I might be uh, not getting along. Now, the fact we don't get along may amount to, let's say, the fact we don't interact a lot or we have different views or values or ways of seeing the world. And it may be that our not getting along does not amount to oppression. It doesn't amount to the sort of conduct that the court would find to be unfairly prejudicial. But the fact we don't get along might nonetheless found an application pursuant to section 461 sub 1 sub K because it might be found to be just and equitable to wind up our company on the basis you and I can't stand to be in the same room as each other. Does that make sense? So it needn't be that the directors are breaching their duties and so we're thinking about a derivative action. It needn't be that I've been unfairly prejudiced and so I'm thinking about a corporate oppression suit. It can simply be that the operation of this company has ground to a halt because whatever reason, you and I are in different countries or I'm not responding to my emails or whatever the, uh, the issue might be. It needn't be the hot-blooded, um, prejudicial, unfair type criteria that we associate with corporate oppression and sometimes derivative actions. It can just be the mere fact of a company failing to function. Uh, and if we flip that on its other side, and I alluded to this earlier, 
an applicant who's behaved poorly in relation to a corporate oppression suit is less likely to succeed there than an applicant who has behaved well. Right, there's this good law from uh, the case Justice White um, sat on in like 1995. I think it's the case of Fexuto, where his honour said something to the effect of a judge must not stand in their ivory tower in relation to the possibility that the applicant had baited the respondent into some improper or unfairly prejudicial conduct, right? And so what his honour is trying to say is that, um, uh, his honour is trying to say that, uh, look, we've got to be realistic about the fact that um, people don't get along and that there might have been improper behaviour on both sides here. And that can stand in the way of an applicant for a remedy pursuant to Section 233 getting what they want. Now, it's not that the opposite is true with Section 461 sub 1 sub K, but the fact of one's own misbehaviour does not necessarily prevent one from obtaining a remedy pursuant to Section 461 sub 1 sub K. And the reason for that is that the court will sometimes find it is just inequitable to wind up a company that's essentially been hamstrung for these reasons that I've been referring to earlier. So the differences between corporate oppression, where you can indeed seek a wind-up if uh, the affairs of the company have been um, uh, conducted in a way that's unfairly prejudicial to some members or all the members, um, it's distinct from an application for relief uh, or for a remedy pursuant to Section 461 sub 1 sub K that the company be wound up. And I hope I've made that evident based on those examples. Sorry, based on that discussion. We're now going to jump into examples, kind of dive back into some admin before we do. This is the fifth and final um, CLE one hour, you know, uh, professional presentation or whatever we call it um, that, uh, that we've done in a series of five. It's great to have your company. Um, I'm reading from a paper just here, or I'm working from a paper just here, and uh, it assists me. And if you think it would assist you, please feel free just to send me a DM um, to ask me about it and I can send it through to you. I probably won't be able to answer thank you in the comments. I won't be able to dive back in, but um, that is fine. Um, I do love the comments. I'm sorry I can't respond to all of them, but but do please feel free to leave a comment and that's fine and that's gratefully accepted as we buzz along. Uh, I think that's the end of... Oh, and please share this around. I think you can actually do that right now or once it's finished, share it around or, or, or whatever it is. Right. Uh, oh, and the talk's divided into three parts. Firstly, we spoke about the law. Now we're jumping into like litigated examples. We're jumping into what actually happens when these matters find their way to court. And the first example we're going to come to is one called Matrix Global Investment Group, Sydney PTY Limited, a nice grand name for essentially a sort of property development business. And what we find in relation to this property development business is that the company itself is in the business of finding buyers for new property developments, right? So essentially it's an agent for property developers. It says, don't worry, I'll go into the marketplace, find you some buyers. And the way it makes money is on finding a buyer, it'll then receive a commission. So the company's off doing that. And we've got our applicants who are seeking to wind this company up on the just and equitable basis. They own 45% of the shares in the company. And we've got the respondents um, who are resisting the application. They own 55% of the shares in the company. Now, over time, we have our respondents, our 55% shareholders, who are sitting there in their position uh, and they take the view that uh, they are not going to continue to engage in the company's business. 
and they stop work in about 2018 from engaging in the company's business. Although there's some complexity because they still remain signatories to some bank accounts. They still remain directors in some context in relation to ASIC forms and that sort of thing. But by the end of 2018, the company ceased taking on new business. It's no longer going out into the marketplace looking for buyers to pass on to these developers. But the nature of the payments are such that they'll become payable at some later time down the track. So notwithstanding the fact that the company stops its hard work of going out of the marketplace finding these buyers by mid-2018, commissions continue to trickle in from then into the company's bank accounts. Now, the respondents, um, they don't behave especially well. And what they do is they um, resolve to cause the company to pay commissions that are the company's commissions into the applicant's new company's bank account. And they stand in the way of the applicants making use of the bank account. And as these amounts are being paid out of the company that the respondents are causing to be paid out, the applicants are sort of screaming and they're being overruled and outvoted and all these sorts of things. And the respondents are causing it to be paid out. Now, what happens is um, that a provlic, a provisional liquidator is appointed um, that the applicants apply for and that's applied. Uh, and the company is ordered to pay the balance of its commission sitting in its, in its bank account into court. And the respondents prevent the company from doing that. So the respondents are really grinding this company to the halt, funneling money out and preventing it from paying other money in in accordance with court orders. And the court says, well, this is enough for us to order that this company ought to be wound up on the just and equitable basis. Now, the court says that it's appropriate for the company to be wound up on that basis. Um, that is because um, there's a complete breakdown in shareholder relations, right? Uh, this is pretty clear. We've got our respondent shareholders who are just overruling, stomping all over the applicant shareholders and doing whatever they please, including funneling off the company's money elsewhere. So that's the second point. The second reason the court finds a basis for the company to be wound up on the just and equitable basis. We've got the majority shareholder transferring funds over the objection of the minority shareholders. And we also find, do you remember about the alternate remedy point? Remember how the court cannot order relief pursuant to section 461 sub 1 sub K unless um, the applicant, <clears throat> sorry, my brain went blank there for a moment. The applicant is able to show that there is no other alternate remedy. And here we have the court staring in the face of an alternate remedy that includes the application, includes the appointment of a provisional liquidator and the requirement that the company pay some monies into court. And the company simply does not do that. And so that is an alternative remedy. And that alternative is sort of closed. It's shown to not be a basis to resolve the dispute. And so the court has some comfort and indeed exercises its discretion to wind up the company. Okay, good stuff. Um, we're going to jump now to a case called Gearhouse. Same year, um, Supreme Court of New South Wales. Um, and sorry if my voice is a bit scratchy. I've uh, got no real uh, explanation or apology for it, but uh, we will survive together somehow. Um, we've got a company and this company um, provides like in-car cameras for race cars to be used for TV broadcast, right? So... I'm not a race car person, but I understand if you're watching race cars on television, you part of your enjoyment is to get some footage from inside the car. So this company provides, you know, enters into contracts with uh, TV distributors um, such that the 
Um, great to have everyone's company joining. Sorry, I'm trying to touch those um, hello there button or wave, the wave button. So really appreciate you joining in. Um, this company provides the in-house cameras so that broadcasters of race car races are able to um, be, do very exciting things and go, these race cars are driving pretty fast. Here's the inside of the, of the car. Again, race cars are not something I understand, but in any case, the company provides these to the broadcasters. Now, the company has two main shareholders and it is the war between these two shareholders that we're gonna be discussing today. The company uses B shareholders um, camera stuff, <laughs> right? B shareholders, the owner of some camera stuff that it transfers or it loans or it allows the company to use in relation to the broadcast of this material, right? So it actually belongs to B, this shareholder here, and not the company itself. Now, at the end of 2020, after this deal from 2016 to 2020 for the broadcasting that the company had entered into, B says, yeah, that's it. I'm not interested in causing the company to enter into any further deals. We're not doing it. Um, and so B says, um, I'm not doing it, I'm not a part of it. Um, the, and then the broadcaster seeks expressions of interest, right? The, broad, the broadcaster is out in the marketplace saying, hey, we need, we need someone to provide some in-car cameras for our next five-year period. And so B, having said, I'm not a part of it, comes back to take its equipment, right? It's like, great, I'm going to come collect it. I'm not involved in this anymore. I'm taking it back from the company. But Gearhouse, the other shareholder, prevents B from taking that equipment. And B later requests information about the equipment being used and all this sort of stuff, and Gearhouse does nothing about it. Now, the broadcaster, in parallel with all this dispute with B trying to get its equipment back and Gearhouse stopping it from getting its equipment back, the broadcaster still there saying, hey, company, are you sure you don't want a tender to provide us with some in-car camera services because uh, we've got some race cars to... Uh, to put on television and we need we need help from someone and it, and it seems that you're the you're the you're the people to do it well um gearhouse um ends up causing b's equipment to be sent to various car races without b's consent uh b wants to get the camera equipment back including as part of a buyback and what b says is look um the substratum of this company has fallen away we're at war here we've got like my equipment we've got like we've got my in-car race car equipment here and it's just being uh, used without my consent, without B's consent. And so the substratum of the company has fallen away. And what Gearhouse said um, where it was, well, hang on, the company substratum is fine. We've got the broadcaster here who's offering a new deal. Um, the point of our company is to enter into deals with broadcasters. Here's the equipment. We're ready to shake hands. We're ready to go. There's no failure of substratum at all. Now, what the court found was that was wrong, was that the company was indeed prevented from what it could do because the only way it could use B's equipment was without B's consent. So if the only way the company can do its job was to breach the property rights of others, um, the court was fairly comfortable um, in saying that uh, the uh, company's substratum had failed. Now, what is particularly important is the court's finding that there has been a loss of trust and confidence. Remember how I said the court would lean heavily. Thanks to all new people joining. I realise it's 1pm and so we're here for a couple of people's lunch hours, it would seem. Um, <laughs> and so the failure of that relationship of trust and confidence between B and Gearhouse was such that the court said the prospects of them continuing the company together were so remote as to be fanciful. Based on all of Gearhouse's conduct, the court says B had justifiably lost faith in Gearhouse. So there's been this breakdown in cooperation of trust 
there's this justified loss of confidence and there's the improper deployment of B's equipment by Gearhouse. And the court says all this stuff taken together means it is indeed just and equitable that the company be wound up. The court also remember, pursuant to subsection 467 sub 4, um, needs to consider whether there is any alternate remedy. The court looks at some of the dispute resolution clauses in the shareholders agreement and finds they're not gonna be applicable in this scenario. And so says, look, there's no alternative remedy. That's it. It's going to be just and equitable to wind up this company. So that's what we're going to do. And that's what we did. Good fun. Admin, I'm reading from paper. If you want a copy, please feel free to ask. Uh, please tell your friends about this and do all the social media things, the like, share, comment, subscribe, um, uh, that sort of thing. Uh, oh, and this this chat is divided into three parts. And I, I realize now all my chats are divided into three parts. It just makes sense in my head. Um, we started with a discussion of the law, which we've now completed. We're now partway through the rude finger section, the second section, um, that is sort of practical examples. Or so, sorry to throw over on the rude finger. That's a little unfortunate, but you know, you're all grown-ups and so that's fine. Um, uh, so we're in, we're in a discussion about those litigated examples now. And once we complete this phase of the discussion, we're going to move into some practical suggestions that I'm going to make. So let's turn to the next case. Uh, the next case is a 2020 decision of the Supreme Court of New South Wales against Justice Reese, if I recall correctly. It's a decision called Crow in PTY Limited. Now, this is a complex uh, one factually that sometimes I let my head get twisted around on. So let's go to uh, country New South Wales and let's go to an uncle and his company and a nephew and his company. And then we've got granddad standing between them both. And if I can just put you in the uh, in the atmosphere that these are essentially pub mo, these are experienced people running pubs or particularly the uncle and the granddad, they're experienced at running pubs and their business is buying, developing and running pubs. And this is kind of the background of the scenario. Now there's an agreement entered into sort of with granddad's um, seal of approval in the background where uncle and nephew uh, enter into an arrangement whereby nephew will be paid um, nephew will be paid a million dollars uh, for managing a new pub that they're developing over five years. And the structure of this pub is going to be the land is going to be owned by a trustee company that each of uncle's interests and nephew's interests has an interest in. And there's going to be a pub built on it. And it's going to be operated by a different company that both the uncle's interests and the nephew's interests are going to be our directors and shareholders of, right? So an uncle and nephew, they their interests co-own a pub or co-own the business operated in a pub and they co-own and are beneficiaries of a trust that owns the land the pub is situated on, right? One So let's just boil that down as simple as we can. The active companies are one of them is a company running a business of a pub and one of them is a trustee company that owns the land and owns that pub. And uncle's interests and nephew's interests cannot see eye to eye. They can't get along in relation to the operation of this pub. Um, now, um, what we have alongside this is we have nephew who, uh, you know, a couple of years into managing this pub, has also gone ahead and bought some nearby land that he plans to develop to uh, create a new competing pub and sort of uh, issues a DA for that and sort of wants to progress the development of that. And the plaintiff um, is later learning of this and is understandably furious and the relationship sort of descends from here. Um, the plaintiff, this is the uncle, tries to issue a buyout notice, um, which is sort of ignored and resisted by the defendant on the basis they'll be homeless. The defendant 
nephew, um, and the defendant resists any attempts to negotiate to reach an agreed outcome. The defendant essentially sticks their head in the sand, continues running the existing pub and trustee company I referred to, while also progressing the development of the competing pub that uh, he's trying to open up down the street. Now, um, what further happens is that the, that the defendant cuts the CCTV camera that the uncle, who doesn't actually reside near the pub, resides elsewhere and only visits about 15 times in a two-year period, has been using to come and sort of, you know, have some visibility of what's going on in the pub. The nephew cuts that so the uncle has no visibility. And I need to take you to an argument they have um, where the two of them get into an undignified struggle over a computer mouse when uncle is attempting to see what the son, what, what the nephew is doing on the computer. And, you, you know, there's some form of undignified struggle in relation to it. The defendant nephew is using uh, his pub email address to send emails to experts and in relation to the development of the new competing pub and allows experts who are helping him develop the competing pub to stay in the existing pub, you know, while they're in, uh, it's, it's in Wagga Wagga, while they're in Wagga Wagga doing their, doing their hard work. So, um, Despite each of uncle and nephew still being directors and despite them sort of operating entities that are, are shareholders, they're unable to get along. They're, you know, they're having undignified struggles over mouses. Uh, they, they're doing all this sort of crazy stuff. And so um, what um, is uh, found by the court is that between the two of them, um, there it, it would be just and equitable for um, the pub to be wound up and for the trustee company to be wound up and the assets of the trust to be placed into receivership. Now, that's because of nephew, remember nephew bought this competing land and concealed it from uncle. Um, that's because of nephew using the assets of the pub to you know, create and benefit his competing pub. Um, and it's because the failure of the nephew to engage in any meaningful negotiations. So while there are suggestions of an oppression claim which is raised, um, uncle presses this just and equitable wind-up claim um, and says that it's this deadlock. It's the fact that the uncle and nephew can't get along. It's the fact they're unable to run the pub or the trustee company together. That's the operative one. And the court also made a finding that in any case, remember how the nephew just stuck his head in the sand in relation to the dispute resolution clauses of the shareholders agreement and that sort of thing. It was fairly comfortably found by the court that the nephew would probably be unlikely to make a genuine engagement in the uh, process or in any sort of process of trying to reach a dispute resolution uh, pursuant to the shareholders agreement or otherwise. And so noting the terms of section 467 sub 4 that we all have to pay attention to, um, the court was satisfied there was no alternate remedy um, for the court to look at. And so the court was happy to um, wind up the company on the just and equitable basis pursuant to section 4611 sub K. Um, and just on that point, and when you're winding up a company, you appoint a liquidator, but you don't wind up a trust, right? You don't appoint a liquidator to a trust. So if you're winding up a corporate trustee, you wind up the company who is a trustee, you want to appoint a receiver to the assets of the trust. So that is done. Liquidator to company operating pub, liquidator to trustee company that owns land, receiver to assets of the trust previously held on trust by that trustee who's just been placed into liquidation. Clear as mud? Hope so. Quick reminder, I'm working from a paper. If you want a copy, let me know. Uh, tell your friends, tell your family, hey, it's some guy talking about boring law. Uh, let's get into the next case. It's called Global Pacific 
Aerospace, uh, and it relates to the purchase of a helicopter. And I'm gonna I'm gonna jump through this one pretty quickly because I don't want to spend too much time. But uh, we've got a company who buys a helicopter for about 1.6 million, uh, and one director and shareholder goes guarantor for the loan to pay for that uh, pay for that helicopter. The helicopter is later sold for a shortfall, which the lender comes to recover, and it's sold to a company related to that other shareholder. And so we find ourselves in a position where one shareholder is saying, why did you buy that company for so much? And the other shareholder is saying, well, why did you cause your related entity to then go on and buy it for so little? And there's a claim from the lender pursuant to the shortfall between the purchase price that they're pursuing the personal gas. So they're taking advantage of the personal guarantee given by one shareholder in relation to. And we've got these suggestions of derivative actions. We've got this financier recovering against one director. We've got a suggestion the other directors breach their duties in different ways. And the company's not actually undertaking any business other than owning this helicopter. And so um, we have what you might imagine is sort of a very messy scenario, but it is, uh, with great respect, a pretty ideal scenario for the court to exercise its discretion to say, hey, look, there has been a complete breakdown um, between these parties. There's no alternate remedy that really stands out pursuant to section 467 sub 4. And so the appropriate position is that a liquidator ought to be appointed. You know, the company ought to be wound up. We'll get a liquidator in place and the liquidator will um, go ahead and try to figure things out. Now, um, there's this nice line from the court that I just want to respectfully um, point on in that the appointment of liquidator was resisted on one basis of like, oh, hey, these, uh, these claims aren't particularly large. There's not a lot of cash in the company. We don't really know how a liquidator is going to go about things, um, how they're going to manage to sort this one out. And, uh, and the judge says, and this is at paragraph 12, uh, liquidators commonly find a way to obtain funding if there's potentially a good cause of action available to the company. So it's just nice to have a nice little shout out um, to those of us who um, deal with sort of liquidators sometimes on a spec basis, and, you know, got a lot of love for our liquidators out there. So the company was wound up on the just and equitable ground. Right, let's turn to a decision called 1A Eden. And to spoil the ending, this is sort of one of those cases where um, the court finds that there are um, alternate remedies and that the just and equitable remedy for the winding up may not be the best one for the parties to be pursuing. So we've got um, a, an arrangement between S and D, who are builders, and then we've got P in place, and P is essentially a developer. And so what is uh, in mind is that there's going to be a 25-25 between builders and P, the developer, is going to take 50, uh, and there are going to be various developments that go on. So um, that's the proportion that the companies are going to agree. And even though it was intended that P&S were going to do the building work, and what actually happens is there's a cheaper builder found. Uh, over the years, um, we get uh, buildings built. They end up they end up getting sold, um, and the company ends up declaring a profit of uh, approximately eight million dollars. And the parties then agree of you know what are all the units valued, and they agree on a notional profit distribution based on that. The OC, the owner's corporation of the newly constructed dwelling, commences proceedings against the company and the relevant contractor. Um, and then we have this position where both the builders have received their apartments in payment and the defendant has not. And what's happening is the builders are lodging caveats over the company's properties to prevent the developer taking units. 
and um, the plaintiff is taking the approach that they should retain their profits, but um, let's wait until the defect proceedings are done before the developer can take their products, right? So the plaintiff's um, securing uh, all this uh, all this stuff or pre preventing the defendant developer from getting their units, preventing the defendant developer from taking their money out <coughs> because the plaintiff essentially uh, is trying to say, you can wait until the defect proceedings are done, but we'll take ours now. Now, um, what happens is the plaintiff says, oh, there's a deadlock. Company should be wound up on the just and equitable basis. And what the court found was that this was an artificial suggestion on the part of the plaintiff. The court found that everyone was happy to leave the plaintiff um, to go and do whatever admin and to leave the developer to go and do the accounting, the maths. The venture had made $8 million in profit and everyone agreed on the distribution, how it was going to be done, and that the plaintiff trying to resist with these caveats and try to tie things up with the defect proceedings brought by the owners corporation had made an application that was quote uh, at power 107 infused with self-interest and so um, while we find that a liquidator, a liquidator could investigate claims um, the amount was one hundred and fifty six thousand uh, dollars and you know the plaintiff didn't undertake to fund the liquidator and that the winding up would affect other companies adversely as well. And so um, winding up, as we remember, is a last resort. It's a drastic alternative. And noting that the plaintiff's only really bleating with great respect uh, about $156,000, um, there, there are less drastic measures available to the plaintiff than this application that was infused with self-interest. And so if I can just linger and if we can reflect on that case for a moment. One of the things we find is that there's a slightly confected air to the deadlock um, that the plaintiff is trying to bring and saying, oh, we're in deadlock, we can't, we can't get along. Oh, well, guess we've got to wind it up. And what the court does is, with great respect, you know, what a court ought to do is look past the, the artifice or, or, or the external appearance of that claim and really dive into saying, well, what's the nature of the genuine disagreement between these parties here? What are we really arguing about? And uh, we then reach the outcome where we come to understand that where there are alternate parts, alternate ways of remedying um, the uh, breakdown in relationships or apparent breakdown in relationships between the parties, the court will encourage the parties to explore that and indeed will not order a just and equitable wind-up on that basis. Let's turn to another case, second last case, maybe the last case. We'll see how we go. <clears throat> it's a case called Anna Bay Resort, uh, PTY Limited 2022, New South Wales Supreme Court. We've got a plaintiff who's a director in their company and a defendant uh, who's also a director in their company. And they start off as like the, the plaintiff's a director and their company's a shareholder. Uh, and then the defendant company is a shareholder. And um, if I sound a bit confused, that is in part because the records of the relevant companies could fairly be described as a mess with gaping holes in the evidence. So things seem a bit fuzzy coming from me then uh, you can rest assured they seem a bit fuzzy coming from the parties as well. But essentially what we have is we've got in 2016, the plaintiff and defendant agree to buy an incomplete tourist resort and we have the plaintiff contributing money over the years. The plaintiff provides half the funding, but the defendant doesn't have the funds to contribute their half of the funding. So the company borrows that money um, and the, both of those parties provide personal guarantees for the company borrowing that money. Now, um, 
the plaintiff on a, a misconceived notion thought that staying a shareholder exposed them to liability pursuant to those personal guarantees and so ceased being a shareholder um, but then and then agreed to be removed as director in order to apparently avoid um, perhaps on poor advice responsibilities for these personal guarantees told you things was fuzzy well fuzzy but the plaintiff then continued to uh, invest funds, 100,000 here, 300,000 there, another further 65,000. And then in 2018, an investor offers to buy half of the defendant's shareholding, 25%, for two and a quarter million dollars. This gave me a great cash injection into the company. And the defendant said no. And in circumstances where the company needs funding, you can imagine the plaintiff who's just bleeding all this money into the company um, uh, is sort of sitting there and saying, um uh look i'm pretty i'm pretty unimpressed that uh that uh that, that this offer for a purchase wasn't um made now um there are other uh moments where the defendant is sort of funneling money out of the out of the company in a manner described as ham-fisted um in relation to it uh and uh, we eventually find this bizarre scenario where the plaintiff returns as director then the defendant removes the plaintiff as director, uh, returns as director, removed as director, returns as director, removed as director. And as you might imagine, um, the uh, lack of deadlock um, that the court was facing by the end was only between the directors was because the plaintiff had been removed as directors. Um, and so um, the court found that it was a fairly comfortable uh, sort of scenario where we've got this relationship breakdown between the parties that is complete and total and that it is appropriate on that basis to wind up the company. Okay, that's the end of the litigated examples. I'm very keen to get us out of here on time. Um, so let's jump into practical suggestions. So remember we started our chat with a substantive law. What is section 461 sub one sub K all about? We dived into that. We talked about 467 sub four and 462 and all the sort of related sections to help us understand what was going on. Um, we then worked through a number of those litigated examples where we came to learn about the sort of fact patterns, the sort of just and equitable breakdown of relationshipy type type fact patterns we've come to associate with this area. So let's now move into practical steps. And here's where things get a little bit fuzzy, but I might start with the clearest bit, right? In almost every set of circumstances where you have a breakdown in relationships between the shareholders and directors, um, a good shareholders agreement uh, or other form of agreement between those parties would be a pretty relevant and important thing for you to consider in the course of advising the parties. And it is not right to think of the only time you enter into a good shareholders agreement is when we're getting the company all set up and it's all clean and new and we're going to draft some lovely fresh new documents as well. Um, we can also enter into those agreements partway through a project. So if you're acting for a client and you've identified a potential breakdown in relationships, what you're able to do then is hopefully um, get involved in that breakdown or get involved in solving that breakdown, I might say, um, and hopefully um, assist your client to engage with the other parties to productively move towards the entry into of and the entry into of an agreement that might deal with the um, issues ventilated between your clients. Agreement is always the first step and you ought to attempt to pursue agreement for a large number of reasons. <coughs> one of them <coughs> is uh, because it's cheap. Uh, and one of them in the context of a just and equitable wind-up is that you're going to need to show the court, if you are to succeed in your application, that there are no other alternate remedies out there that have failed to be explored, including, for example, the negotiation between your client and some of the other relevant parties 
um, of a potential commercial solution to the to the falling apart of the relationship. So first big broad practical suggestion is agree. Help your client get to an agreement. Help your client get to an outcome that's going to allow them to shake hands or sign on the dotted line or whatever it might be to avoid uncertainty in future and to deal with the breakdown of this relationship. Now let's assume that's impossible or let's assume you are exploring in parallel how a court application might look. Um, the areas you'd be thinking about are the ones we often talk about and that we spoke about earlier. You'd be thinking about corporate oppression, you'd be thinking about derivative actions and you'd be thinking about the just and equitable winding up remedy. Now, you might remember in previous weeks where we've discussed corporate oppression and derivative actions, we've sort of discussed when do you use each, right? So if we have a misbehaving director, you as a shareholder might say, oh, do I want to sue in corporate oppression or do I want to sue by way of derivative action? Do I want to seek, seek leave to bring, a, bring an application that directors in breach of their duties to the company and seek leave to do that pursuant to Section 236? Now, that dichotomy between corporate oppression and derivative actions that I've spoken about in previous weeks, we can add just an equitable winding up to create a trichotomy if we weren't confused enough to think about what is the best advice to give to our clients who are concerned about the management of a company or the way the affairs of a company are being conducted. And one of the um, matrices uh, I've suggested that could be used previously is does your client want to stay or does your client want to go? And that sort of dichotomy between those two may inform you in saying, right, if my client wants to go, then my client can make an application to uh, bring it to seek relief pursuant to section 233, right? Which is often going to be <clears throat> a share sale, which will remove the unhappy shareholder, whether it's your client or the other share, uh, other shareholders, um, or um, a winding up, right? That's going to end their relationship. They're going to go. So if you ask your client staying, like, do they want to stay? Do they want to go? And they say, go, you go, great. Corporate oppression, oppression might be it. If you ask your client, do they want to stay or go? And they say, stay, um, as we've discussed in previous weeks, you might think about a derivative action. Because remember, the nature of a derivative, derivative action is such that your client will be granted leave to proceed against whatever party wronged the company and to cause that party to repay the company, right? So your client's not being enriched. Your client is causing the company to become enriched um, and is <coughs> pursuing um, this you know, misbehaving person on the basis that um, they want the misbehaving person to account back to the company. Now, the difficulty in relation to that is that you may need some clarity on the stay or go, or you may ask, well, where does just an equitable winding up fit in relation to those two? And the answer to that is go, <laughs> right? That's really the short answer. Uh, there's not a lot of stay involved if, uh, if your client is keen to uh, wind up the company. And so if there has been that deadlock, that breakdown in relationships, I would place a client who is talking about <coughs> go, who talks about wanting to end their relationship with the company, very firmly into the just and equitable camp. And the reason it's an important string to have to your bow, and it's not merely a poor younger sibling of corporate oppression, a just and equitable wind-up is a genuine, genuine different uh, basis for relief um, in relation to an unhappy shareholder or a, a client unhappy with the management of a company um, 
because uh, your clients in different circumstances can bring such an application. You might be acting for the bad guy. <clears throat> if you're acting for the bad guy, there's every chance that a corporate oppression remedy will be closed to you. But if you're acting for the bad guy and they are one of two bad guys, then there's every chance that a just and equitable wind up re remedy may be available and you won't need to traverse all your own clients' misbehavior to deal with the position they've entered into. So um, there's that sort of strategic option that just and equitable wind up brings you when you're advising your client. You're able to take a broader view of what potentially might be available to that client who wants to go rather than stay. And that <coughs> also <coughs> deals with that corporate oppression problem that I sort of alluded to a moment ago and discussed at some length earlier of the idea of baiting, right? So in corporate oppression, we sometimes see criticism of some parties on the basis that they might have baited <coughs> the respondent into whatever mis misconduct is complained of in the relevant application. If that is a concern or a risk you have identified in relation to advising your client, then a just and equitable winding up can deal with that baiting issue on the basis that you can say, yeah, well, even if we baited, <laughs> even if that's right, um, we're still here to get this thing wound up. It's still just and equitable. There's still a deadlock or the substratum of the, of the company is still failed. You will need to prove that it's not an application infused with self-interest uh, that we saw the applicant in 1A Eden fail in respect of. But I say, if you're 50-50 about your client's uh, bona fides, then that's the sort of thing you can look to, the just and equitable winding up. And so to recap, um, today we spoke about section 461 sub 1 sub K of the Corporations Act and learned that the court may wind up companies when it is just and equitable for it to do so. And that that time mostly happened um, when there was sort of a deadlock in the running of the company, grinding it to a halt. We then worked through a number of practical examples together to kind of understand when this just and equitable stuff will arise and when it won't. Um, and then we made some practical examples. And I'd really like to uh, empower you to have that just and equitable string in your bow when you're thinking about how you're going to give, give your client advice on these topics. That's the end of the discussion. Uh, if you have any questions, please plug them in now so I can see them. I've been working from a paper through this presentation. And I'd be very happy to provide you with a copy of it if you want to ping me a, ping me a note or anything like that. But uh, unless there was anything else to say, <coughs> I'm planning to leave shortly before I descend into a coughing fit. Hey, this was the fifth in a series of five talks. It's been a little bit of a marathon getting here. Uh, we got here together in the end. I'm really grateful for your company and I will look forward to joining you again soon for another coffee and another case note. Um, for anyone who does not um, know, I do a regular sort of case summary um, you know, project that you might be able to find if you search coffee and a case note on your favourite uh, favorite base, uh, favorite, uh, internet platform. Sorry, I'm fiddling with Lego down here. So please go feel free to follow that. I'd be really grateful. And aside from that, I hope you have an excellent day and I really appreciate your company. I'll say goodbye to Instagram first over here. Instagram, uh, thank you for your time. And I'll say goodbye to Facebook, to LinkedIn, to YouTube over here. Really appreciate you all for tuning in. Really grateful for your company. Uh, thanks, for, thanks for all these comments, which are very kind. Uh, and I may have to get back to them another time. Have a good day. Oh, I've got to click another button. Hang on. <laughs>